Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you you speak loudly and clearly about uh, yourself and this world and how to live as your people in it. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who saved us and pray that we might be challenged as we read through this book of Daniel over the next few weeks to know what it's going to mean to live for you in a world opposed to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, there are many issues that uh, we face as Christians in this world. I mean, some of us will be persecution. Uh, there may be financial struggles. There's uh, sins which dog us. There's temptation around us all the time. Uh, while we might not be, uh, it's not the same situation as the Christians face in the Middle East at the moment where you can be killed and that reading uh, in in John, Jesus warns that people will kill you in the name of God thinking they're serving God and that's certainly happening to Christians overseas. That's not the case here. But if there was ever a time that Australia could have been called a Christian country, that time is no longer. And the way we Christians are viewed by our contemporaries varies anywhere from, from pity uh, at one level through to downright contempt. Uh, Australians might resent militant Islam, but they would never dare, dare mock it like they do Christians and Christianity. We are at the same time a laughing stock and an annoying thorn in the side uh, of our nation, which many would be glad to be rid of. Being a Christian is to be an outsider. Being a Christian is to be an outsider. Now, that shouldn't surprise us if we read our Bibles. We would know that that was always going to be the case. The Bible describes us as aliens and strangers in this world. This is not our home. Heaven is our home and we are temporary residents here and strangers to the world. Uh, we do not belong. We live in this world but it's not our home. Jesus warned over and over again that to be his, which is the greatest thing in the world, there is nothing greater than belonging to Jesus, to have your sins forgiven and know God is your heavenly father and that he loves you and watches over you. Uh, it's still costly and difficult. He says, if the world hates you, bear in mind that it hated me first. He says, whoever is not for me is against me, and whoever is not against me is for me. There are no in-betweens, and you have to choose. And yet we don't want the Christian life to be hard like that. We don't want like being laughed at or dismissed, and so our loyalties are often divided. I don't know if you find that. I even find that, and I'm paid to be a Christian in one sense uh, as the minister. Uh, but our, our loyalties are often divided. You can... We can feel very strong the temptation to compromise our faith in the Lord Jesus or to duck for cover when anyone asks us about being a Christian. Uh, I know I have to live God's way, but what if my husband or wife isn't a Christian? I, ha I have to live with them. I'm, I'm supposed to love them. But what happens when what they want clashes with what God wants? What am I going to do? I know God's commands about truthfulness and honesty and love, but I have to face the reality of work. Uh, what if I'm a salesman? I have to sell things to people that I know they don't really need. And I might even have to use the lines I've been told, that this will change your life. It's not going to change their life, right? You know, it's going to break in the next five minutes or there'll be a new one three weeks later. And... Uh, uh, if I'm a supervisor, I might be called on to look the other way or to favour a deal with a particular contractor. Uh, if I'm a lawyer, I'm really in trouble. Yeah, uh, I know I should not rejoice in evil and that things like revenge, greed, lust are against God's ways and yet that's what we most love about our movies and books and songs 
Am I supposed to live a dull, boring existence and ditch all my friends because that's how they entertain themselves? I know God says generosity and sacrifice are what he calls me to, but but I want to store up my treasures in bigger and bigger barns and I want to enjoy my retirement and live for, well, for me. How do we live as Christians in a world opposed to God? How do we conduct ourselves? Am I just bound to fail and bound to compromise? Uh, And does God care? Does he understand? Will he do anything about it? Those are the questions that the book of Daniel asks, uh, book of Daniel, which is in the Old Testament parts of our Bible, written about more, you know, 500, 600 years before Jesus. Uh, Daniel and his friends were Jews who found themselves living in the capital of the pagan world. Uh, Babylon, it was a city of decadence and vice, wealth and prosperity, a testimony to the filthy rich with its tall buildings and its hanging gardens, which were a wonder of the world. Babylon was the centre of the Babylonian Empire, which stretched at this point in time right across the Middle East and up into Europe and down into northern Africa. Uh, It was the largest superpower ever formed. Uh, Babylon was ruled by a power-hungry and well-resourced dictator named Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king, and he raised the biggest army ever seen and rolled everything, much like the German tanks in the early years of World War II. They just went and city after city fell before them, nation after nation. And finally, even God's nation, Israel, had fallen under their power. The unthinkable had happened. Jerusalem, whose walls had never been breached, was smashed. The unconquerable city of God had fallen. Nebuchadnezzar had most of the people put to death by the sword, uh, but 7,000 men, women and children from the social elite of Israel, including the king, were taken as prisoners of war to Babylon. They were the remnant of the once mighty nation of God and they were again slaves in a foreign land, much like hundreds of years before they'd been in Egypt. And in this bunch, Daniel and his three friends found themselves as young boys, uh, possibly as young as eight, but probably primary school age, uh, sons of the Jewish nobility. Now they were sad and sorry, prisoners of war. Uh, They were not there by choice. And for Daniel and his friends, you can imagine the, the conflict in their minds a conflict over who's in control, uh, a conflict of who should they serve. Now they've been, you know, they're the people of God, but they've been captured and given away and should they just kind of bow to the wishes of the king? Here they were captives, bound to serve the pagan king who conquered them and he will ask them, no, he'll command them to uh, betray their faith in God many times in different ways, drastic ways. And we'll see the effect as we go on that not compromising has real consequences for them. Uh, Three times, in fact, they're sentenced to be executed for standing up for the Lord Jesus, or not for Jesus, but for God. Uh, And it's really tough for them. And yet we see in every situation that God wins. God's in control. 
Uh, and that's the message of this book, that though the world looks like it's owned and run by the rich and the powerful, that dictators and magnates seem to always succeed, though earthly kings and kingdoms look like they reign supreme, it is in fact all of inconsequence to the God who made it and who owns it and who will judge it. So don't worry, don't compromise, trust the one who wins. Now you see, for instance, in just the opening couple of verses here uh, of Daniel, which establish the situation, what's going on. Turn to Daniel chapter 1, where are we? Page uh, 855 in the Pew Bibles or whatever page it is in your own. In the third year of the reign of, Jim, uh, of Je- uh, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Who's in control there? Who's in control of the situation? Uh, Who put the people of Israel into captivity? Well, King Nebuchadnezzar came and he besieged the the city and, and, and took the city and took the people and the gold and everything. But... Verse 2, the Lord put them there. It was God who delivered the people of Israel and Judah over to the Babylonian king and to the Babylonian people and to the Babylonian gods for that matter. Uh, They were delivered over by God himself. God didn't lose control. Uh, he didn't go off to sleep one night. He was dozing away and you know, woke up and found his house plundered and everything t- taken away. Uh, he didn't wake up suddenly to find everything gone. I know some of you have had that experience and you've been robbed. Uh, but no, God gave his people into this slavery. You think, why would God do that? That's outrageous, isn't it? Why would he deliver his precious people into the hands of a maniac? Well, the rest of the Old Testament prior to this explains that because of their sin. For hundreds of years they had defied God, they'd rebelled against him, they'd worshipped idols and God had promised again and again and again through his prophets that the day would come when he would bring his judgment and he would bring it through the hands of foreigners who would take them away and it had come. See, God is not reactive He's not there only to, to fix up the mess uh, you know, and when there's, there's trouble, uh, you know, things that have already happened. Uh, how many people, how many Christians think that God's not really in control? All he can do is tidy up things afterwards and go, um, oh, I can help you here. And many people have that view of God. They think you make a mess of things and God comes along with a bucket of mop and he tidies everything up. Uh, if something goes wrong, well, that's the devil, or that's uh, me, uh, or it's you. Uh, something goes right, it's God. You get sick, that's the devil having control. It never occurs to us that God might have made us sick in the first place. Although in the Bible, God makes people sick and he makes people well. God creates woe and he brings wealth. Uh, both things are in the hand of God. People are delivered into captivity by God. And they're rescued out of prison by God. It's God who put Israel into Egypt all those hundreds of years before. It was God who rescued them through the hand of Moses. It was God who sent Jesus to the cross. Yeah, it was wicked men who betrayed him and didn't want him to be the Lord and Master and thought they could do away with him, but that was God's plan. 
that his son would die because that was the way he was going to save us, through his blood shed for us on the cross that we might be forgiven and free. God put them at this point in prison. And God has placed us in whatever circumstances we have in here and now. He's done it. The world that you and I live in is a world full of suffering and pain and paganism. It's full of the wealth and the splendour of the pagans as well. Our magnificent city with its opera house and Harbour Bridge and Darling Harbour, uh, the incredible fireworks. So who stays up on New Year's Eve and watches the fireworks on TV? Anyone brave the crowds and go into the city and see it live? Uh, I mean, it's incredible. Uh, uh, and we do it because we can. And we burn up millions of millions of dollars of money for a five-minute show. It's just like Babylon of old. It's all the same. Unbelievers rule and make wealth and godly people suffer. But, but we mustn't see that as being outside of God's control. God has placed us here. And yet we might forgive Daniel if he thought that God had lost control. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had defeated Israel. And the next few verses describe what looks very much like the heroes of this book, Daniel and his friends, uh, have given up their faith and they've compromised on their principles. Because look what happens, verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. I mean, he's talking about you know, the kids from the elite schools. You know, these are the king's students. You know, kind of thing, or sure, you know, students. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's tables. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among them were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Four young boys, well-groomed, athletic, handsome, intelligent boys from the rich end of Israelite society who were supposed to serve God in everything. And yet it looks like they've just resigned themselves to their situation. Not that they've got a lot of choice. I mean, they've got to serve the king. They're told this is your new job in life. Uh, they accepted the learning that they were given for three years. And you think, oh, big deal. Everyone's got to go to school, right? Uh, but it was a big deal because it was pagan learning and not just pagan learning like the Department of Education today, but genuine pagan learning uh, that included things like magic and the occult and astrology and all the arts and crafts of evil. That's what they were being taught. And what's the big issue with their names? Big deal. I mean, we, think, we don't think much of it because... What do we name our kids? Well, things that sound nice, but we don't really know what they mean. You know, they're just cute. Evelyn, Sarah, Amelia, just nice sounding, right, kind of thing. Uh, I know Alison's put a great deal of thing, time into thinking what it meant, but for most of us, we just don't care. We just think that name sounds cool. <laughs> but for the Israelites and just for every other culture in the history of the world, you name your kids something with meanings, you know, something about your wish for their life or what you hope them to be. Uh, and in their case, 
the four boys, their original names given by their parents, were all names to do with the God of the Bible, whose name is Yahweh, which means I am. Daniel. Daniel's name means God is my judge. And so, you know, when they called young Daniel for dinner, they were saying, God is my judge, Uh, food's on the table, come on, in you come, God is my judge, where are you? (laughs) Uh, Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Now, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is kind and loving and generous. Mishael means one who belongs to God. Azariah means Yahweh helps or Yahweh is my helper. Now you can understand why Nebuchadnezzar wants their names changed, right? He wants to mock the God he thinks he's defeated in battle and remind the captives that Yahweh is not God here. And the names he gives them are all related to the Babylonian gods. Uh, Daniel's new name is Belteshazzar, uh, named after Marduk, the head of the pantheon of the Babylonian gods, who went by the title Bel. Uh, Belteshazzar means Bel, protect the king. Hananiah was given the name Shadrach, which means by the command of Aku, Aku being the, the moon god. Uh, Mishael, one uh, whose name meant one who belongs to God, had his name changed to Meshach, meaning one who belongs to Aku, the same moon god. Azariah, Yahweh helps, he became Abednego, which means the servant of Nebo, Nebo being the dragon god, uh, lord of wisdom and writing. Uh, how'd you cope? Imagine, you know, if I just decided I was going to call you by the new name I felt, you know, hello, Allah's servant, how are you going? You know, ah, Buddha's child, how are you today? You know, it's it's an insult, it's a mockery. It's uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Ashpenaz, his manager, knew how to spit in God's face. Our gods have won and you will be known by their names. We're going to call you that every day. You know, bell protect the king. You know, you belong to Aku, you know, servant of Nebo. How would you cope? What would you do if your boss just called you that every day, Buddha's child? Would you say anything about it? Would you do anything about it? They don't appear to kick up a stink about it at all. So have they just given in? I mean, they're entering the king's service and they're going to be practising the magic arts and they're going to be... Have they given up and compromised? Now, it might appear that way, but very quickly we're shown that they haven't forgotten God at all and they're not going to compromise. In one sense, they can't help what other people call them. But there are certain things they will not do as God's people because they know who really is in charge. And in an astonishing move, a little Jewish boy contends with the might of the Babylonian Empire and takes on the king. He starts by making a resolution. It always starts by a resolution, resolve, determination to do something. Verse 8, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He resolved, he determined he would not do it. It wasn't because he didn't like the food. Rather, he resolved in his mind and heart to do the right thing to obey God. But why the food? I mean, of all the things that he could have resisted, why the food? Why not the names and the, you know, the learning? 
What's going on there? Seems a funny place to draw the line. But in different times and different places, you draw the line in different places. What is it about the food he had such an issue with? Well, some people say it's because he was a vegetarian and all Christians should be vegetarians. Uh, uh, other people say it's because the law of Moses was being broken because he was being asked to eat pork and prawns. Uh, others see it as a matter of idolatry because the food would have been offered up to the Babylonian gods. But I'm sure it's none of those reasons. The Bible does not teach vegetarianism. Uh, it teaches that meat is the good gift of God to be enjoyed and appreciated. You know, when you have a feast in the Bible, you kill the fatted calf and you barbecue it. That's the good life. Um, God's favourite smell in the Old Testament is, the, uh, is when the fatty portions of the lamb are on the barbecue. It's an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Uh, if you want to be a vegetarian, go ahead, but don't think the Bible's teaching that that's a Christian virtue. Uh, in fact, if you're a vegetarian, I'm actually glad because it means when we can have a party, I can eat your meat. <laughs> it's not to do with breaking the law of Moses either. That's not the issue because the law of Moses has nothing to do and nothing against drinking wine and Daniel refuses that too. So that's not it. Nor is it idolatry because even the bread and the vegetables he does eat in the end were offered up to the Babylonian gods. Now the key is that it's the king's food, the royal food that he's refusing to eat. In verse 5, that's how it's described. It wasn't just any food, it was food from the king's table. That's what he refuses to eat. Because to eat from the king's table gives him the obligation of loyalty to the king. You can't eat from the table of the man and at the same time be disloyal, disobedient to him. To rise up against the king after eating food from his table would be treachery. Such a person would be a traitor. You see that in Daniel 11 verse 26 where there's horror expressed when the people rise against the one whose table they've eaten at. It's like Judas Iscariot who eats with Jesus at the Last Supper, dips his hand in the same bread bowl and then walks out to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. It's horrific. It's a complete betrayal of trust. And Daniel will not do it. So he resolves, I cannot eat from Nebuchadnezzar's table. I may be under his authority, but I cannot be one who is dependent on him in any way. Daniel couldn't afford to owe Nebuchadnezzar anything. There is no such thing as a free lunch. That's what Daniel wants about. There are no free lunches. If he's going to eat this food, he's going to be asked for something later that he will not be able to refuse. He's not rude about it. He doesn't spit the food in, the, in, in their faces. Instead, he takes an extraordinary step. Isn't it weird? Extraordinary step of asking permission to be godly. Imagine going out to your boss and asking permission to not do something that might compromise your faith and principles. Um, would it be okay if I don't be the one in charge of this deal because... I'm going to have to lie and I'm not going to do that. Put someone else on the job. And God's sovereignty comes to the fore again, verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God caused the official to show favour and sympathy to Daniel. 
God's in charge. God delivered his people into slavery and God caused the official to show sympathy with Daniel. The king and his officials, they think they make their own decisions, uh, but God's in control. We mustn't panic as if God's lost control and we think we're doomed or the church can't survive in this world. We, we mustn't panic when our government is corrupt or godless or makes bad decisions. Instead, what are we to do? We're to pray. Pray for those in authority. Why do we pray for those in authority? Because God is in charge. Because God rules. And because God caused the official to sow sympathy, he doesn't just dismiss Daniel out of hand, even though he's still nervous about the situation. Verse 10, but the, <laughs> the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would have my head because of you. You know, you're, Daniel, what you're asking of me is to put my own life on the line for your principles. That's not really fair, is it? But Daniel's resolved. So what does he do? He proposes a trial. Daniel said to the guard, whom the uh, chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. That's not a long test. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. Now that really is a miracle. They only ate vegetables and they became the healthiest people around. God really is sovereign. Um, and, and it's meant to be funny. It's also true. Uh, God rules. When their diet should have caused them to become scrawny and weak, they thrived. And God's rule and sovereignty are shown in one more thing in verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Skip down to verse 20. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about that which God, uh, the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and chanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Which means it's four or so kings that Daniel ended up serving under. For many, many years he would be in this job as the king's advisor for four kings. God gave Daniel everything he needed to be able to take a stand for him. And he gave him everything he needed to excel in the king's service. And he gave him everything, as it turns out, to do the job better than anyone else uh, can in the whole kingdom. Ten times better, we find out. Uh, and we can be assured that God will give us all that we need to fulfil his purposes. God wanted Daniel to be one of the rulers of Babylon and God gave Daniel what the teachers of Babylon couldn't give him. More wisdom, more ability. If God wants us to do something, he will give us more than we could ever get from this world. It's a great lesson, Daniel 1, about whose world we live in. This is God's world. God owns it. God runs it. But do you believe that? Do you believe God really runs this world? Do you know that he is the one who is in charge? Because if you don't believe it or you start to doubt it, you'll give in when it really matters. You'll compromise and divide your loyalties because deep down 
you'll suspect that the might and the power and the wealth of this earth are what really matters. But if you know the truth that God reigns and everything is his, you will be faithful and consistent as a Christian, as his person. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested and they're told not to speak about Jesus. Whatever you do, don't speak about Jesus. And they said, no, we must speak about him. There is no other name under heaven and earth by which men must be saved. For us, it might be telling the truth in a job interview. Tell the truth, you don't get the job. Tell a lie, you do get it. That's happened to me. Has it happened to you? Which is more important, to get the job or to tell the truth? Well, it depends who you're trying to please, doesn't it? It might mean re-evaluating our hopes and plans for retirement or at least asking the question, who am I living for? Who will I be living for in my retirement? It might mean that we have to stop lying to ourselves about our kids and grandkids that their life decisions which are opposed to God are really okay. It might mean taking our responsibilities as the elders in our family to lead, correct, train and equip them seriously. It might mean we have to fight the disappointment and resentment that uh, will increasingly come as we get older because of sickness, ageing and death, which you know, we don't feel when we're in the prime of life as if somehow ease and trouble-free living are our right. God does not owe us. We live in a world that's decaying and dying and the hope of life and future is, is in the heaven. It may be in relationships with a non-Christian boyfriend or girlfriend or in the Christian relationship where you're physically overcommitted or in marriage where it's hard and you feel you just want out but you made promises for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health, to death do us part. It may be in, in the party that's just too debased that you need to pull away from those friends at that time. It may be in the videos and movies you don't go and watch. Uh, it may be in the office, in the gossiping and slandering of the boss or the clients. It might be at home with our parents with their aims and goals for our life and career different from what we know God would have us do. In turning aside from those things for the sake of the gospel and maybe going to the mission field. It, it could be in choosing not to get first class honours at uni for the sake of doing youth group or Bible study. There are all kinds of places, whichever stage of life you're at, where you might have to draw the line. But when we reject the world's ways, we have to trust God in his wisdom. We have to trust God in his sovereignty that he will bless us for standing for him, that he knows best. For whenever we draw the line, we are laying down a challenge and we are effectively calling on the world to repent. We are fleeing from the evils of this world. We are rejecting the values of this world. We are saying, we are saying to our society, no, you do not rule. God rules. We are saying, in my life, you may have my body. You may have me here in prison, but the one I obey is God. It's a difficult balance to walk. Uh, as we live as godly people in this sinful world. But God is the Lord of all. He is the Lord of Australia. We can't escape this world. We have to live in it. And yet at the same time, we have to stand apart from it and be quite different so that we can be like his son, the Lord Jesus, living in this sinful world, yet being godly, getting on with the real job we have to do of holding out the word of salvation to those under judgment calling on our nation and the nations of this world to turn back to God for forgiveness and pardon, calling them to come to the one who owns it all 
And it was given all that they might be saved. Who was given his son to die for them that they might be forgiven and have life. Are you resolved? Are you resolved like Daniel to honour God no matter what? That's what we've got to do. Father, we thank you for this uh, amazing book in the Old Testament and we pray, please, with this great challenge to resolve to be yours alone, to be godly in all that we do, to trust you for everything we need. Please help us to do that and to take the flack, to take the disappointments that are going to come as people react, to stand for you. We pray that we might do it for your honour and glory for the sake of holding out the word of eternal life through Jesus to other people, uh, that they might be saved. We pray, please, that you pour out your spirit uh, on this community, this nation, this world, that many might come to know the truth. They might understand why we take a stand for you. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.